0: I remember hearing very early in my life that there's only two religions, okay? And at, at, way back when, it was attributed to, um, um, oh, I can't even think of, oh, uh, Ryrie, I think it was. But I, can never, I could never find where that quote came from. And then, as I got older, I realized, well, it's all over the Bible. There's only two religions. Romans 125 says they exchanged the truth of God for a what? There's the two religions. And it goes on to say they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. There's the two religions. Um, So there's the truth versus the lie, the creator versus the created, and in a false religion that worships the the creature elevates man, elevates the creation to the level of God or even above the level of God. And that is a false gospel. When we worship the creator, It's a Christ-centered worship. It's his work on the cross, his grace, and the salvation that depends on God, not on me. So why is there a Grace Church distinctive on Roman Catholicism then? And why are we doing a class today? Why are we talking about Roman Catholicism? Well, obviously, because a lot of you are interested, Grace Church is full of a lot of former Catholics. I married a recovering Catholic that's what I call her. (laughs) Grace Church has some current Catholics. I don't know if you're aware of this. I've met many who come here, particularly on Sunday nights, who are going to Catholic Church in the morning, and they're coming here at night. And I want you to know that, that there are people at Grace Church who are wrestling with what we're going to talk about this morning. For decades in my life, and I am old enough to say that now, The Roman Catholic Church was dominant in the culture, dominant in the politics of this country and around the world. And there's a common question that gets asked. Well, and I guess that's the historical reason of why there is a distinctive here at Grace Church on Roman Catholicism. And if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say distinctive, there's this is the last. I feel like I'm the bottom of the ninth inning here on Sundays in July. There's a whole series of classes that have been um, provided on the distinctives of Grace Church. There's a document that says what we teach, and then there's a list of papers written on various issues that um, um, the elders wanted to take a very clear position on. And the, the, the distinctive on the Roman Catholic Church is really to answer the common question that we get asked a lot and maybe even that we ask a lot, which is, can Catholics be Christians? Or can there be Christians in the Catholic Church? And I know maybe some of you ask that question, even some of you who have come out of the Catholic um, Church because you have family there, and you have friends and coworkers who are in the Catholic Church. We're not here, nor are we called to study false religions. That's not the purpose this morning. Um, We're not even really called to refute them in great detail. There's no need to do that. The primary goal is to know truth and to measure any false claims against the truth of of the Word of God. In fact, Titus 1.9 says that we are to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And we need to be prepared to do both. And Acts 20.28 warns the elders of the church to be on guard. And so that is... Um, what we want to um, think about is we talk about this this morning. I'm not an expert on the Roman Catholic Church, nor do I really wish to be. Um, the reality is that most Catholics I know or meet are not experts on Catholic teaching. Um, th- that's why, to the extent I reference the Catholic Church today, I'm going to be try to be very careful and reference what the Church teaches. Sometimes that's different than what catholics think they believe so we're not going to deal with the fringes of the catholic church the teachings and traditions we're going to go right to the heart of it Um, the disparity between the core teaching and the catholic church and the revealed word of god is so significant that arguments or discussion about tertiary teachings of the church really are unnecessary it's picking a fight that isn't necessary Without background, I want to initially present the teachings of the Catholic Church in two areas this morning. We're going to talk about what the Catholic Church teaches about the Bible, and what the Catholic Church teaches about justification, the gospel. These are fundamental and foundational areas that provide the backdrop for reviewing the truth of Scripture together. Okay? Okay. So let me jump in and talk about what Catholics teach or believe about the word of God. Okay? The word of God. Now when I say word of God, you think what? Bible. Right? Bible. And why is that? Well, just a couple of verses, Hebrews 4:12, the word of God is sharper uh, or is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. 1 John 2.14, I've written to you, young men, because you're strong and the what abides in you? Word of God. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And I can go on and on and on. You could too. When we hear the word of God or the word of Christ, we know it's referencing the Bible. The Catholic Church teaches that the word of God consists of four things. One is the Bible. The Bible is just one of the elements that make up the Word of God. There's also the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are written works that were not admitted into the canon of Scripture are generally not acknowledged as divine. There's the Magisterium. The Magisterium is the church's authority to teach and interpret divine truth, to interpret The Word of God, which is that, and that interpretation is vested uniquely in the Pope and the bishops. And I'm not going to quote. This is my only quote of a Pope this morning, but I want you to see this. Pope Paul VI in 1965 said this: Scripture and tradition make up a single sacred deposit of the Word of God, which is entrusted to the Church. Okay, so it is Scripture and tradition, okay? So, there's some consequences to that. And the fourth one is the Pope's ex-cathedra pronouncements. This has to do with papal infallibility, that in certain circumstances when the Pope says it, it's divine truth, whether it's in the Bible or not. And obviously it's not, otherwise why is he saying it? He's adding to Scripture. Catholic Church traditions and teachings, by the way, the magisterium, all of that that makes up what they call the Word of God, are binding on all true believers under the threat of eternal damnation for those who hold contrary opinions. The Church, not the Bible, determines what is true and what is not true. This places the authority of the church, if not equal to the Bible, over the Bible. The allowance for and the adherence to extra-biblical revelation is necessary to advance any false doctrine, any extra-biblical traditions, and some of the most obvious extra-biblical man-made traditions in the Catholic Church are based not on Scripture and actually completely contradict Scripture. And the only way to get there is to ignore Scripture or to say we know better than the Bible. I'll give you some examples. Confession before a priest. Some of you were raised in the Catholic Church. You know what I'm talking about here better than I do. Catholics are taught to confess sins committed after baptism and have them absolved through the administration Of a priest. This directly contradicts 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no biblical basis for an intermediary. None. There's penance. After confession, I understand you may be told to say three Hail Marys or to repeat the lord's prayer or take some other action to complete the process of absolution it's a form of punishment if you... historically there was also a system of indulgences where you paid money for absolution it was also a fundraiser. absolution is the formal remission of sin imparted by a priest it's a term and a concept, again, that is not in the Bible. And the only way you can get there is to say that the Bible is part of the Word of God, but we're going to add to it. The whole system of a pope, cardinals, bishops, and priests is church polity that is not in the Bible. The Bible makes very clear that the church is to be led by pastors and elders, shepherds, the presbytery, all those words in your Bible are the same word in the original language. Pastors and elders, not popes and cardinals and bishops and priests. For example, in Titus 1 5, Paul um, writes to Titus and says, I left you in Crete for this reason, that you would set in order what remains. And appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And by the way, that wasn't so that they would report to the cardinal who reports to the pope. Paul was establishing in Titus that each church is autonomous under local leadership. 1 Peter 5 Shepherd the flock of God among you, and a message to elders among you. Elders and pastors are selected from among us to shepherd us. As I always like to say, we rub fur together. We're all sheep. Okay? There is no hierarchy that goes outside of the local church. There is no case for that that you can make from God's revealed word, the Bible. Transubstantiation. This has to do with communion. Um, This is a, a teaching of the Church that the bread and the wine are literally changed into the body of Christ, the blood and body of Christ. It was adopted as dogma. I find this interesting. It wasn't adopted as dogma by the Catholic Church until the 1500s. So this is a little bit late in the game, and there's no basis in Scripture for this, but it's close enough that I want to take a moment to push pause here, and look at the passage where this comes from. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. You're familiar with this. If you've been at Grace Church and attended communion, you've heard this passage read many times. This is Paul writing, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Speaking of a symbolic ceremony, if you will, that was to be continued in the church. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's a very important verse. It does not say, for as often as you eat my body and drink my blood. Verse 27, forward looking now, says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It does not say, in verse 27, whoever eats the body of Christ or drinks the blood of Christ. Okay? But that passage has been confused enough that there are many Catholics, and certainly the Catholic Church uses that as a text to come up with this doctrine that the blood, that the, uh, the cup is, is turned into the actual blood of Christ, and that wafer actually turns into the body of Christ. And that's a whole other session to go any further than that. I'm going to leave that there. And again, we're, we're going through examples of teachings of the Catholic Church, traditions of the Catholic Church that necessarily could only come from human beings and how they thought it up because it just is not in the Bible. The doctrine of Mary, that she was born without original sin. This, this, by the way, was not Catholic dogma until 1854. The Catholic Church celebrates the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, There's a lot of people, even Catholics, that think that's about Jesus Christ. That is not. It is about Mary, the immaculate conception, the sinless birth of Mary. Mary is the mother of God and the mother of the church and all of its members. Catholics pray to Mary with great reverence and devotion because she is the model of perfect love and obedience to Christ. Did you get that? Perfect. She was perfect. That is not in the Bible. By the way, I want to be clear. The Catholic Church does not teach that Mary answers prayer. They haven't gone that far. Um, What they say is she brings them to her son on behalf of Christians. This is a direct affront to the specific, explicit, revealed Word of God that says in Romans 8.26 that the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is who? God, fully God. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That is the revealed word of God. And a church that teaches that anybody else intercedes is false. Okay? All of these deviations from the Bible are possible if you elevate the desires and the opinions of men over the written word of God, the Bible. In each of these examples, and these weren't picked randomly, but each of these examples, Christ is diminished. His glory is stolen, and man is exalted. Man is assigned a role in a process that was reserved exclusively and only for God. It does not matter how well-meaning or seemingly wise or even spiritual these add-ons appear to be. They are contrary to the Bible. Everyone and everything is secondary to God's word. The Bible is the inspired word of God. It's complete. It's powerful. It's accurate. It's reliable. It's sufficient, authoritative. It's helpful, and it's understandable. It also provides the blueprint and the instructions for the church and how the church is to function. And if you're saved here today and you have the Holy Spirit, the truths of the Bible are within your reach and within my reach to understand and to apply. And the mandate is that you and I reach towards that, to read it, to study it, um, to understand it, and to apply it. Psalm 19:7, one of the great 7 to 10 is one of the great passages that lays out God's description of his bible. And I know these are familiar words, the law of the lord is perfect, it restores the soul. The testimony of the lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. It's just such a great passage. There's all the various names of the Bible. And then there's all um, the description of what it is. It's perfect, which means whole, complete, sufficient. It says that it's sure, meaning it's unwavering, immovable, timeless, reliable, says that it's right, meaning no errors. Um, It says that it is pure, it is clean and lucid. There's an absence of impurity or error or imperfection, and it is true, meaning it is faithful and it is reliable, and it was that way when it was written, and it's that way today, and it's that way into eternity. Any man that thinks they can produce anything where that description would apply, is horribly deceived or incredibly evil. The Word of God is far above anything that a man can produce because it is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, I already referenced this. Um, In Psalm 19, it says, "...the Word of God is so powerful that it can restore the soul." In Hebrews 4.12, "...the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit." of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no other document that can do that. I hope you understand that and believe that. Elevating the words and teachings of man to that level not only cheapens the impact of the Bible, but as we've already seen, it steals God's glory. And you do not want to be there. I would not want to be there. In Psalm 19, it says the word of God makes wise the simple. In 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul explains that. He's writing to a young man, Timothy. He says, remember um, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to what? Anybody know? Salvation. Making wise the simple. That's the power of the word of God. And by the way, that wisdom doesn't save you. It says, wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It's powerful. It's authoritative. It's perfect. It needs no addition. In fact, I'm not going to take the time, but you probably know this. The Bible is very clear on what happens to people who add to the word of God. And you can read through the Gospels, Christ's interaction with the Pharisees, who added to the word of God, who put burdens on people too difficult to bear. Don't, you don't want to be there. In that verse I read in 2 Timothy 3.15, the next verse is that famous verse that says, all scripture, all scripture, that is the literal writing. The written word is inspired, God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Do you believe that? If you do, then you have a very difficult time accepting the the teachings of the Catholic Church. A simple reliance on Scripture is sufficient to understand the Church, salvation, life, the future... We call it eschatology. Nothing needs to be added. But the Lord knows we need help understanding the Bible. And I just want to say this very quickly. Ephesians 4 tells us that God gives gifts to men. He gave us the church. He gave us the Word of God. And he gives us preachers and teachers to help us understand the Word of God. And most importantly, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the author, is in our heart. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is to teach us. And what is he teaching us? It's not the magisterium. It's not commentaries. It's not covenants. It is the very word of God. All of that is the center of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Creeds, confessions, and commentaries of men can can be helpful, but they must be measured up against what? the Word of God, the Bible. And they do not in any way rise to the level of Scripture and should never be viewed as more authoritative than the revealed, written, inspired Word of God. So everything else we talk about today depends on a reliance on the truth of the claims that the Bible makes. That's why I dealt with this first. And to the extent you're talking to family members or friends who are Catholics, to the extent they do not believe that the Bible is the Word of God and the only Word of God, the rest is somewhat academic. That is foundational. But let me transition now to talk about the gospel, salvation. What does the Catholic Church teach about the gospel and salvation? And this is what I have found. And there's five points here. The first point that they teach is that God's grace is poured out into the sinner's heart, making that person progressively more righteous. The second point of um, their teaching on the gospel is that it's the sinner's responsibility to preserve and increase that grace by various good works. The third is the means by which justification is initially obtained is not faith, but the sacrament of baptism. Fourth, justification is forfeited whenever the believer commits a mortal sin. You can lose your salvation, in other words. And the fifth major point that they make is that good works are necessary both to begin and to maintain the process of justification. Let me just say this. That teaching is a false gospel, and I want us to see that this morning. There's no other way to say it. I cannot minimize that. It's dangerous. It's a false doctrine that leads millions of people to believe or hope that they are reconciled to God when, in fact, they are not. Okay? That teaching builds a dependence on man, priests, the pope, the church. For approval, affirmation, absolution, and even salvation. Rather than who? Christ. It places men between us and Christ. And that is entirely man-made, man-designed, and unbiblical. And maybe the, the one verse I want you to think about as you leave here today, the key verse, is 1 Timothy 2.5. You probably know this verse. For there is one God... And one mediator, also, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If you understand that verse, you believe that verse, you have put your faith in Christ based on that verse, everything else we say this morning makes total sense to you. Very important. There's a lot of words, concepts, and positions that are taught in the Catholic Church that are very, sound very biblical. We use the same vocabulary. Grace, sin, righteousness, (coughs) excuse me, sinner's responsibility, (coughs) excuse me, confession, repentance, faith, baptism, sanctification, good works. These are all words you will hear or see in Catholic teaching. Most Catholics acknowledge the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the need for a Savior. Let me say that again. The need for a Savior, the deity of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, and the ongoing need for sanctification in a believer's life. They would acknowledge all of that. So let me ask again, can a Catholic be a Christian? And I recognize that in the Catholic Church, when you say, can a Catholic be a Christian, it means something completely different. They're saying a Christian as opposed to a Protestant. I'm using the term a true believer. Can a Catholic be a true believer? Are there Christians in the Catholic Church? And I'm not going to answer that directly, but I'm, I'm going to say, let's look at the Bible What the Bible says, and you can come to your own conclusion. The answer to those questions come not from doing a deep dive on Catholic teaching, like I said, but from doing a deep dive into the Word of God, and we don't have the time to do a terribly deep dive, but we are going to go um, fairly deep, and I'm going to move quickly. I'm going to focus on one aspect of the gospel that is the fault line, and it is what's called Justification. Justification is a term that is central to Catholic teaching, but it is, in my experience, not well known among Catholics. A Catholic would agree with us that there must be a reconciliation between sinful man and a righteous God. Man is sinful and must be made right. On that, we agree. There is a deep, uncrossable chasm between man and God. And why do we need to be made right before God? Well, a couple of verses, and I know you know these verses. Romans 3.23, all have what? Sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 talks about the consequence of that sin. It says, for the wages of sin is what? Death." death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5:20 talking about how we're ambassadors for Christ. It goes on to say we beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. That is the gospel message. How can I be reconciled to God? And that's the focus of evangelism. Justification means to be declared right before God. That's what we're talking about. To be reconciled, to be righteous before a holy God. It is what crosses that impossible chasm between God, a holy God, and man who has, have all sinned. And to be clear, let me be clear, we believe that the Bible clearly teaches that justification is God's declaring someone righteous because of the merits of Christ, not mine or yours. The righteousness of Christ is applied to us on our behalf through faith. Justification is the great exchange. Of our sin for Christ's what? Righteousness. He took our sin at the cross and in exchange, he covered us with his righteousness. And it's even more than that. He made us righteous. And all God's people said, glory, hallelujah, amen. Right? I mean, that is amazing truth. If you're saved, he views you as righteous. Yet you and I know that we still sin, don't we? But the ongoing mission of life and the joyful pursuit of life, um, pursuit of our life as a sinner saved by grace, is to pursue Christ through that to glorify our Savior by living a sanctified life. It's a labor of love that is only possible because of the work of Christ. It is not a labor of trying to achieve salvation. Where the Catholic Church might agree that we need to be justified, made right with a holy God, they have a very different view on how that happens. They teach that justification is a process. It's dependent on human effort and achievement over a lifetime and beyond that lifetime even past death, and that there's no assurance this side of death that it has been, that justification has been accomplished. So let's look at what the Bible says on all of this, and I'm going to give you three points here to kind of um, help um, maybe put in buckets, if you will, the verses we're going to look at. One, justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. I know you've heard that a lot. I want to show that to you. So important. It is a dividing line between um, the Bible and what the Catholic Church teaches. Second, justification is instantaneous. It is not gradual. And third, justification results in the eternal confidence that, that God's righteousness was credited to my account. It cannot be taken away. So let's deal with the first one. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. There's a very clear word association in the New Testament faith and works, or all the synonyms for works. When you see the word faith, it's very common to see in close proximity a discussion of works, behavior, They go together in terms of proximity, and in several places in the New Testament, there's a contrast between faith and works, and in others, there's an apparent linkage between faith and works. This has caused confusion, and it's a serious dividing line between what the Catholic Church teaches and what the Bible says, and I want to show you what the Bible says. Let's talk about justification in Christ alone. Is it in Christ alone? John 14:6 says, "Jesus said to them, "I am the way, and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me." Pretty clear, isn't it? Acts 4:12, and Acts four, I, I commend you to read some context on this. We don't have the time this morning, but verse 12, "There is salvation in no one else." For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Not all men must be saved, but if you're going to be saved, it must be, must be in Christ. It's in Christ alone. What about faith? Not works. The contrast here is salvation is through, by faith alone, in Christ alone, meaning it's through faith, not works. Okay, now we're going to look at some of those passages where that's the proximity. And if you want to go through this with me, I'm doing them in the order they're in the Bible to make it easier to keep up with me if you want to. Or if you're just making notes, you can go back and look at this later. But Romans 3.28 makes the case that it's faith, not works. Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from what works of the law couldn't be more clear could it if you believe that the bible is the word of god that's all you need to see that's the clarity of the bible romans 5:1 1, one of my favorite chapters in the bible romans 5 fantastic chapter of the bible encouraging the believers We'll just look at verse 1. Therefore, for now, therefore, having been justified by what? Faith. We have peace with God through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. In one verse, it lays it out. Peace with God is not a prelude to salvation. It's not a requirement of salvation. Peace comes because of justification of faith in Jesus Christ alone it's not a future peace it's now and it's because justification happened it's not peace because justification will happen very clear galatians chapter 2 verse 16 galatians 2:16 says that man is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you hear it? Let me read that again. Man is not justified by the works of the law, or any works, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Clarity? Clarity. The Bible's clear. There are more passages in the Bible making this clear, unequivocal point that we could spend the rest of the time, and it would be fun to do it, to reflect on the simplicity of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. No intermediaries, no conditions, justification. This is not unclear in the Bible. It is that simple. And once you see this, you cannot unsee it. And I think some of you understand when I say that what I mean. If you think that salvation is or was achieved in any way on your works or worthiness, you believe in a gospel that is not in the Bible. The distinction is clearly drawn works or compliance with a code of behavior or a law, um, leaving sinful patterns or turning to better life choices. However you say it does not save you. It does not justify you, nor does it bring you to a place where you're more eligible for salvation. If I used to be a thief and now I have not stolen for a long time, that's probably good news on some level but it has absolutely nothing to do with my qualification for justification. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. Eliminating sinful behavior does not make me more worthy, and it's not a prelude or requirement for justification or salvation, but it is, and this is where the confusion comes in, that kind of a change would be evidence of justification. Second point, justification is instantaneous, not gradual. And again, this is the second point where we should all, if we were a little more charismatic, jump up and say, hallelujah, praise God. <laughs> Just a little more charismatic. The ramific small c charismatic, by the way, I don't want to get in trouble. The, the ramifications of this truth are profound. You see, the righteousness of God is credited to your account and my account, and our sin is no longer counted against us. That is not what happens on the other side of the grave. That is what happens now. Amazing. If you want, turn to Luke 18. I want to read you a parable. Luke 18, verse 9. This parable starts out with an incredible concise, devastatingly convicting description of human pride. And Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Do you see the definition of pride? That doesn't describe any of us I trust. But that key phrase is they trust in themselves That they were righteous, believe they're righteous, and view others with contempt. That is pride that sends you to hell. And I say that on the authority of the next several verses. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I pray tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Verse 14. Catch the uh, tense of these verbs. I tell you, this man went to his house, what? Justified. Justified. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Justified is past tense. It's done. It's done. And just to drive this point home, Luke 23, a couple chapters over, the criminals hanging on the cross with Christ, as Christ is being crucified, they are also being crucified. In verse 41, I'm just going to parachute into the story here. The thieves are talking. The criminals are talking. One says, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, hopefully you will be with me in paradise. Good. You guys are on your toes. Today. Today. What was going to happen today for that criminal? Dead. Heaven. Done. Isn't that amazing? Amazing truth. I hope that encourages your heart. There's no waiting. There's no actions needed. needed. You see, when Christ does it, he does it. When man does it, it's a process. There's peace. It's done entirely by Christ instantly for eternity, and that is justification. It is instant. It's not gradual. And this highlights a major divergence in Catholic teaching from the clear, plain word of God, the written word of God. The teaching of progressive sanctification for the purpose of salvation produces anything but peace. There can be no assurance. And I watch this in my own life I had the best mother-in-law any man could ever ask for. I loved her. We always enjoyed her company, and we, we made arrangements and worked it out, and my in-laws moved in next door, and I couldn't have been more happy. Um, well, a few years ago, my mother-in-law fell ill and was rushed to the hospital, and after lingering there for several days, she passed away, and sadly... We had no indication in those last days that she ever put her trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of her soul. But she was a faithful Catholic. This was a difficult experience on a number of levels. First of all, it was a personal loss. Still miss her. Anne was really close with her mom, and there's no mystery as I got to know her over the years as to why. The other difficulty during that period was that her Catholic priest wanted to spend a lot of time with us at the hospital with the family. And to my shame, I started off, I didn't really like this guy. I felt that from a human standpoint, I was sitting with a man who was responsible for leading one of the people I love the most straight to hell. But over time, I was forced to spend time with him And we got to know each other. And Ann and I were recounting, even driving in this morning, the things that he and I had in common and how it was so obvious that the Lord brought us together. I had a new friend. But he did the last rites ceremony, and as he was done and leaving the hospital room, he pronounced, Marge will be in heaven. I restrained myself. A couple days later, she died, and at the, the funeral, they call it a funeral mass, I think, That same priest preaching at that memorial service said several times, Pray for Marge. Pray for Marge. And pray that Marge would make it to heaven. You're already experiencing the same cognitive dissonance that I was. She will be in heaven in the hospital room versus pray for Marge on her journey. This was, of course, a reference, I suppose, to purgatory, which the Catholic Church says is the final purification of the elect. And there is, of course, no biblical basis for that teaching. So after the service, there was a reception at our home for family, and, of course, Marge's priest came. So I asked him at that um, reception if maybe he and I could have lunch sometime. He instantly said yes, and what followed was a couple of shared meals and the ongoing development of what became a friendship. But for that first lunch, I brought a lot of restraint, I want you to know. I did, and I was accountable. Rather than bringing the sermon I wanted to bring and the lectures I wanted to bring and and the barrage of Bible verses I wanted to bring, I brought three questions and one Bible verse. And I was bound and determined to stick to these three questions and this Bible verse or this Bible passage. The first one, I asked him about the two two messages. I said, I heard what you said in the hospital room, and then I heard what you said at the funeral. Which is it? Second question was, I asked him, can you reconcile for me what you teach and what you say to Romans 8, verses 1 and 2? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the, spirit, law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And then the third question that I asked him was, do you have any assurance as you sit here today in this restaurant, having lunch eating tacos any assurance that you are going to heaven and the only response i'm going to tell you to my three questions is the response he gave to that one he said no shocking i had come to like this man even love this man and that that discussion left me deeply grieved for him And I'm not naming him because he's still in the ministry. And I still pray for him. I express my grief for him personally. And I also left that lunch very sad for his church. He had no hope. How could he possibly give his people any hope? And you know he can't, outside of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I gave him books. He knew I went to John MacArthur's church, by the way. That was a point of contention. <laughs> he read books, but he stuck to the gospel, small g, that he had been teaching. And in fact, he, he was leading his church in a hopeless, empty, deceptive understanding of a false gospel. And in some sense, I got the feeling that he knew it. Because we went through over time exactly what we've talked about this morning. You see, the true gospel is simple, it's clear, it's precise, and it requires no intervention by a church or a man or a priest to accomplish it. It requires faith alone, in Christ alone, and it is instantaneous, it is not gradual. You see, once you belong to the Lord at your funeral, nobody needs to pray for you because you're where? You're in heaven. It's done. What a great gospel. The result is an instantaneous and a permanent exchange my sin for Christ's righteousness. And I want to close our time in, in walking through that a little bit. Justification results in the eternal confidence. That God's righteousness was credited to my account. And that, you know, you're familiar with Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. How many times have you heard that verse? Said that verse? Do you understand that verse? If you understand that verse, it changes everything. It's a passage we hear a lot, and the ramifications are enormous. If you're saved, your sin has been, past tense, permanently removed. And you can take that all the way to eternity. This is the great confidence of biblical justification. Our sins were removed. God's righteousness was added or credited That great exchange is done. It cannot be lost. It cannot be stolen. It cannot be removed. The credit cannot be reversed. And some of you that know I'm an accountant are thinking, I'm using this accounting term and loving it, and that's true. (laughs) But it's in the Bible. We'll see that in a minute. It's an accounting term, a banking term. Christ's righteousness has been credited to us. It's all done for us, to us like having someone constantly transferring money into your account, and there's no way to stop it. Bad analogy because it happened once. I just realized I've got to rework that analogy. (laughs) This is the great exchange. My sin for his righteousness. Romans 4, if you want to follow along in your Bible, I'm going to work through a couple passages here. Again, once you see it, you cannot unsee it. Therefore, I want you to see it. God's word is powerful. It is sufficient. Is Christ's righteousness credited to us permanently? Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 2, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited, there's that term, to him as righteousness. Do you see that? That's quoting Genesis chapter 15. For people who want to say the gospel has changed, it has never changed. The good news has always been the same. That Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Do you hear that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone, and that justification is instantaneous, not gradual, and Christ's righteousness is credited? That's the story of Abraham. That's my story. That's your story. If you've believed in Christ alone for your salvation— Romans 4 verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and all God's people said, amen, "Amen. and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose um, whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness, How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised. You see that? But while uncircumcised. We can spend time unpacking that, but the basic message is this. Abraham's faith in Jesus Christ saved him because God credited his righteousness to Abraham when he still had not complied with the law. Being circumcised is not what saved Abraham. Works do not save you. Justification results in the eternal confidence that God's righteousness is credited to my account. It was true for Abraham, it's true for you and me. And that passage quotes Psalm 32 and Genesis 15. These are not just New Testament truths. Romans 5 back to Romans 5 the next chapter over verse 18 So then as though one trans, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men even so through one act of righteousness there resulted what justification of life to all men for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners who's that one man Adam, Adam. okay we are we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Okay? If you heard if you if you watched the movie that we all saw or some of us saw last Sunday night, Vodi Bakham gives that description of the federal head. We are sinners because we come out of Adam. Right? For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one who's the one Christ, Capital O, one. Depending on your translation of the Bible. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be what? Made righteous. Unbelievable. We get the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5. I know I'm moving fast, but I'm hoping that once you see it, you see it. 2 Corinthians 5.20 again. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How? Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. There's the first part of the exchange. He took our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amazing. Amazing exchange. One more, Philippians 3. You're familiar with this passage, Philippians 3, verse 8. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain what? Or who? Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived by the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of what? Faith. There it all is. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Justification is through faith alone. Justification is through faith in Christ alone. And it is with the righteousness of God accomplished Not mine. What a relief. What an amazing relief. So the Catholics teach that God's grace is poured out into a sinner's heart, making that person progressively more righteous. No. The good news is that justification is instantaneous, and it results in Christ's righteousness credited to my account. Once, And for all. They teach that it's the sinner's responsibility to persevere and increase that grace by various good works. Can you increase the grace of God? If you understand that it happened at a point and was done, you cannot exceed that. At the moment of salvation, we were made righteous. We cannot and do not increase grace. They teach that the means by which justification is initially obtained is not faith, but the sacrament of baptism. No, salvation, justification, is by faith alone, in Christ alone, not in any act, not in any behavior, not in the keeping of any rules. Salvation is so simple. They teach that the means by which justification is initially obtained is not faith, but the sacrament of baptism. We've seen that. Justification is forfeited. Whenever the believer commits a mortal sin, you can lose your salvation. Can you lose your salvation? You cannot lose your salvation. There's so many verses, but remember Romans 8.1. Romans 8, one. There is now, today, now, no condemnation. Is that hard to believe? Yeah, that's hard to believe sometimes, isn't it? That's the great exchange. Finally, the Catholic Church, as I said, teaches good works are necessary both to begin and maintain the process of justification. The answer to that is no. Salvation is through faith alone, in Christ alone, not works. The law condemns, grace saves. The law will always condemn. Trying to behave a certain way will always be a fatal process if you think your salvation is dependent on that. You know, today is not really about Catholics. I hope you understand that. It's about, I hope is encouragement about the two gifts that God's given us, the Bible and the clarity of the Bible and a great salvation, a great exchange. And I would have to finish with one more passage, Ephesians chapter 2. And I think Ephesians 2 was presented to me when I was in junior high here at Grace Church as the way to present the gospel, and I've never left it. And junior high was a long time ago. (laughs) But in light of what we've said this morning, listen to Ephesians 2. And you were what? Dead. We agree with the Catholic Church on that. We're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were in opposition to Christ, children of wrath, even as the rest... And two of the most amazing words in all the Bible, verse 4, but God. And who's God? Go read Ephesians 1 this afternoon and make a list of all the things it says in Ephesians 1 that God's done for you. That's the God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Very important point made us alive together with Christ. We were dead. He made us alive. We didn't start coming to life. We didn't show signs of life. We were dead. And even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is past tense, isn't it? Amazing grace. He lifts, lifted us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through what? Faith alone. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of what? Works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. For our salvation? No, salvation's already happened. It's done. Through verse 9, it's done. Verse 10 says, Now that you're saved, you've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And get this, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And that is why we say... Works don't save you, but works do give evidence that you have received that great exchange. Your, Christ, your, your sin was given to Christ. He credited to your account his righteousness, and that all happened because of faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And that great exchange, that justification, was instantaneous. It is not gradual. I love the hymn that we sing. We sang it a couple weeks ago. I was really hoping it would line up and for some reason we would sing it this morning. My favorite hymn for decades has been It's Well With My Soul. And that was written by a dad whose three daughters, his wife and three daughters were killed. I have a wife and three daughters. It kind of resonated. And he wrote that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. But there's a hymn that's been written recently by a man named Chris Anderson. It's called His Robes for Mine. His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. His robes for mine, what cause have I for dread? God's daunting law, Christ mastered in my stead. Faultless I stand with righteous works, not mine, saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. His robes for mine, God's justice is appeased, Jesus is crushed, and thus the Father pleased. Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, it's done. Sin's wage is paid, propitiation won. His robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He as though I accursed and left alone, I as though he embraced and welcomed home. And the chorus says this, I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. Think about that. Bought by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all shall be for Christ alone. Amazing words, Uh, just uh, steeped in rich doctrine that we've kind of tapped into this morning. And I hope you leave here today more grateful than when you came in for such a great salvation. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you indeed for such a great salvation. Lord, I pray that the time this morning was clear that I might not have gotten in the way of the clear revealed word of God. Lord, you have saved us by faith in Christ. And that justification that you gave to us was instantaneous. And Lord, we marvel at that. That we do not need to do anything to achieve salvation, but that you have done it all. And that we have the eternal confidence that you see us as righteous. What marvelous grace. What a mercy, Lord, to be able to live in this world knowing that salvation is accomplished. And Lord, it's our desire as believers here this morning that we would live in such a way as to put on display that amazing grace through how we live in a dark world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.